morning, church. As you're seated, get those Bibles, open them up if you don't have them already. And before we get started, moment of confession. I feel like there was something I was supposed to announce and I didn't. Uh, I don't even know what it is. Um, I remember in our elders meeting, I was like, guys, I need y'all to remind me. There's six of us here. Surely somebody will remember. Baptism, that's it. Thank you so much. We have another baptism uh, to celebrate uh, this week out of uh, the faith family ministry. And so this Wednesday, not only are we baptizing one of the students, we're also baptizing his mother. And so mother and son are going to be baptized on Wednesday night. And so I don't want to have any Wednesday night programmings or anything like that. But it would be extremely encouraging unto them if you were able to make it and to see their baptism. And so uh, it's obviously right in here, and we'll do that. Uh, it'll happen right at 5.15 on Wednesday. So if you're nearby and you're available, uh, I invite you on behalf of all the faith families to come out and to be here uh, this Wednesday at 5.15. Thank you for... You have the alarm, didn't you? It didn't go off. See, it never works that way for me at least but now we know now I can relax and get into the zone and let's look at God's word together so John chapter 18 last week uh, we found ourselves in Matthew chapter 26 and there we talked about the execution of Christ and how it all began with a conspiracy and so we talked about Caiaphas Caiaphas was the Roman appointed high priest he had a meeting and he met with the chief priests, and they were the religious leaders, and had the chief priests and the elders of the people, and they were the political leaders. So the Roman-appointed high priest meeting with the religious leaders and the political leaders, they formed an unholy alliance that conspired together in order to kill Jesus. This conspiracy leads to the arrest of our Lord. But before you can have uh, a, a trial and a sentencing, you must first have the incarceration. And so today, uh, we're going to take some time to look at the events that surround the arrest of the Son of God. So picking up in verse number 1 of John chapter 18, it says, uh, When James had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. When Jesus left the, the room that they had just finished eating of the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he, he left and they crossed the Kidron Valley. Now the Kidron Valley lies between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. In fact, Kidron Valley is actually what we would refer to as a wadi. A wadi is a stream of water would, would flow through that valley after heavy rains. And so during the time of festivals, remember this is the time of Passover, so during the time of festivals, there would be a large amount of people that would make their way to Jerusalem, to the temple, to make those sacrifices. And so during those times, the Kidron Valley, that wadi, would, would flow from the drainage from the temple. And so that, that residue would be reddish. 
from the blood of the thousands of sacrifice of those Passover lambs. There's Charles Spurgeon who said about John 18, verse number 1, he said that the very brook would remind Jesus of his approaching sacrifice, for through it flowed the, bro- the blood and refuse from the temple. So Jesus would have been crossing that, that wadi from the sacrifices of, of the temple. We would go down to, to the garden. It says that there was a garden. The garden was the garden of Gethsemane. There was at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Now, now John doesn't name it the Garden of Gethsemane, but we find that from other gospel writers. And so Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse number 36 says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Then in Mark chapter 14, verse number 32, it says they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And so we know now that they're in the, the Garden of Gethsemane in Hebrew. Uh, that term Gethsemane uh, means olive press. So it's the garden at the, at the base of the Mount of Olives. And so picking up in verse number two, he says, now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So during festival times like the Passover, tens of thousands of Jews would flock to the holy city. And most of them were were forced to stay in makeshift shelters, if you will. So they'd stay in tents or other kind of temporary shelters. And according to Luke chapter 21, verse number 37... There was a garden, and there was a place where, where Jesus and his disciples would, would come and, and rest each and every night. They spent the day in Jerusalem and the evenings in this garden, most likely to sleep under the shelter of those olive trees or perhaps in caves that are nearby. Let me share it. Luke 21, verse number 37 says, Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, But at evening, he would go out and he would spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. So this is kind of like the background that's beginning to happen. And so what's interesting is in John 18, verse number 2, it says that Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So this would be a strange way of referring to this temporary plan at this one particular Passover event, it probably indicates that this had been the habit of our Lord and his disciples any time that they were in that region. And it says that this is where they often met. And so when, when Judas, when, when, they, when they go to the garden to arrest Jesus, it is Judas, one of his own disciples, that betrays our Lord. This is particularly hard to understand. How could a disciple who had been with Jesus for over three years betray him? How could he deliver him to the men that would ultimately bring about his execution? Some people have tried to treat Judas like he was a hero. 
They maintained that, that it was God who chose him for this particular role, and Judas was only doing what he had to do. But this is problematic because this overlooks Judas's uh, freedom to make his own choices. It removes his personal responsibility and accountability for his own deeds and actions. Yes, God knew that Judas would be a thief and a traitor. But God did not choose him or force him to be either one of those things. Judas chose for himself to be both dishonest and disloyal. Judas was greedy, longing for more. He longed for something that was greater than what he was seeing. And so when he grew weary of waiting for Jesus to instill his power and his authority, then he offered himself and his services to those whom he perceived had the power and the authority. And make no mistake that his remorse over what he had done did not lead him to godly sorrow and repentance. It only led him to suicide. In the end, it was selfishness that prompted Judas to act. Verse 3 says, Judas then, having received the Roman cohorts and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. It is an interesting fact that we probably don't fully appreciate on first reading. Notice how they bring with them lanterns and torches. Understand that Passover is held during the time, the days of the full moon. So there would have been plenty of natural lighting. Plus, Judas knew exactly where to go. Under the full moon, plenty of natural lightings, and yet they bring lanterns and torches. The question becomes, why? Why so many? Why was it necessary? They were probably expecting Judas, I'm going to switch, Tom, probably expecting Judas to, to flee or to hide, to, to run and to escape. Maybe, that was seamless, wasn't it? That was nice. Maybe into a, turn me down a little bit, maybe into a nearby cave or, or something to that effect. Within the trees, in the dark shadowy places of the garden. They were anticipating some type of reaction from Jesus and they were preparing themselves for all possible scenarios. And so Judas knew exactly where to find Jesus, and it was to that place that he takes with him a mixed crowd of people. Notice that he brings with him the Roman cohort. This is a military term that's used here. Some translations rendered this as a band of soldiers. And so a Roman cohort, a full cohort, would be as many as 1,000 men. A typical cohort would be about 600 men. There are occasions 
where they could be as few as 200 men. So, Roman troops were typically brought into Jerusalem during the festival times as heightened security. They would be there to try to deter any violence or possible rebellion among the Jewish people. And so you have this large military unit that is with Judas anywhere from 200 to 600. I doubt very seriously it's at the full cohort level of a thousand, but two to six hundred soldiers. In addition to that, there's officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. We might refer to these as the Levitical temple police. They also accompanied the Roman soldiers. So they're bringing the lanterns, the torches, and weapons, right? And so they've already, these temple police have already failed to arrest Jesus on several occasions. And, and so let me walk you through some of them. There's a group of temple guards in John chapter 7. They tried to arrest Jesus because people were claiming that, that he was the Christ. And so they're sent, and these temple guards are sent to go and to seize Christ. And so the guards never laid a hand on him, and they come back completely empty-handed. And in John chapter 7, verses 45 through 46, it says that the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way that this man speaks. Second occasion. It literally happens in the very next chapter, in chapter 8. There's a second attempt of a failure to arrest Jesus, especially after he explicitly claims to be God. In John chapter 8, verses 57 through 59, it says, So, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And so thinking that this was blasphemy, right? The religious leaders were prepared to kill him on the spot. And it says, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so that's, that's the second occasion that, that John records. And then there's a third one. This one is in John chapter 10. After declaring that he and the Father are one, we're told that the Jews picked up stones again in order to try to stone him on the spot. And then we're told in John 10, verse number 39, Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Three times the temple police have been unsuccessful in apprehending our Lord. There's no wonder that Judas now has with him, in addition to these temple guards, a Roman military unit as well. So as you can see, they have failed to arrest Jesus on so many previous attempts. 
that this is most likely why, why they take such a large force and so many weapons with them as they seek to arrest Christ. So John chapter 18 now, getting back there in verse number 4, says, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus was fully aware of everything that was about to happen to him. He knew that he would be unlawfully arrested. He knew that he would be unfairly tried. He knew that he was about to be unjustly convicted. And he knew that he was soon to face an unmerciful execution. Jesus knew all of these things. In fact, in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we see these words. Jesus speaking, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus was not surprised about what was happening. No, he was a willing, voluntary sacrifice. So Judas shows up with these soldiers and these religious leaders to, to get there and to take Jesus by force. But instead of taking him by force, Jesus peacefully and willfully, voluntarily gives himself up. So let's be honest. No matter how heavily armored they might have been, they never could have seized him unless he was willing to allow them to do so. So verse 4 says, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene, that name, Jesus, the, the Nazarene, identifies Jesus with the village of his childhood. Yes, he was born in Bethlehem. Yes, there was a temporary exodus to Egypt after being warned by an angel, but eventually the family settles down in Nazareth, and it is in Nazareth that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. So they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene, and he said to them, I am he. And Judas also who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And what does that mean? Well, what does it mean that they, they suddenly, they draw back and fall to the ground? These were armed military soldiers surrounding an unarmed individual. It's possible some might speculate 
that perhaps they recoiled after a possible sudden movement from, from Christ? Possible, but highly unlikely. Jesus doesn't make a sudden move towards them, and the first guy steps back startled, thus causing a chain reaction of hundreds of soldiers falling down on the ground. That's not what happens. We're talking 200 to 600 individuals and officials, soldiers. You see, the original Greek here helps us to understand what is truly happening. Jesus does not say, I am he. No. Jesus says, ego I me. Jesus says, I am. When, when confronted by his captors, Jesus replies with, I am. In doing so, he once again claimed to be the eternal God. Jesus uses this special name for God that we discover in Genesis chapter 3, right? And he does so with such authority that for a moment, his enemies are driven back in fear. There was such a, a display of the divine presence, the majesty, and power of those two words that the enemies of Jesus were powerless to stand against it. They don't fall down in worship. They fall down in fear of the power of the name of God. This is a vivid reminder that even in the darkest of hours, Jesus holds ultimate power. Ultimate power over his enemies, Ultimate power over the, the powers of darkness. Jesus is in control because he's the one that bears the name Ego I Me. Scripture says in verse number seven, therefore he asked again, then uh, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. I told you that ego I me. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Jesus did not offer any resistance at his arrest. Rather, he willfully gave himself up in order to protect his disciples. As the good shepherd, Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. In John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, it says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In this moment of Jesus voluntarily giving himself up, taking the attention away from the disciples and focusing it completely upon himself, 
Here we see that his protection for his disciples is a perfect illustration for his substitutionary atonement. See, he died not only for them, but he died instead of them. So as the good shepherd, he did not lose any of his sheep. He fulfilled his father's will. He fulfilled his own prophetic words. Jesus said himself in John chapter 6, he says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on that last day. The only hope for eternal life is found in believing in Christ for your salvation. There's no other way. Now, if you've heard this story, and I'm assuming that you have, then you know kind of how it plays out, right? Jesus is tried. He gets convicted. He's sentenced. He's tortured. He's executed. Jesus dies. Jesus died so that we might live. There's something that we all have in common in this place. One day, unless he comes back, one day, each and every one of us is going to die. How we die, when we will die, where we'll be when we die, we might not know those details. But the one detail that we cannot escape is the fact that every one of us is going to die question becomes, what will happen to you when you do? You see, within the church, we often talk in terms of like being saved, right? The, to be saved means to, to be rescued from sin, rescued from, from eternal death, rescued from, from hell in the place of torment, you know, another way uh, to think about what it means to be saved is to, to think in terms of what it means to be safe. See, to be saved means to be kept safe. You're, you're kept safe from, from sin. You're kept safe from the penalty of death. You're kept safe from the wrath of God. Everyone who comes to God through faith in Jesus will be kept safe for all eternity. Hebrews chapter 7, verse number 25 says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you will draw near to God by submitting and surrendering your life unto Jesus, He will keep you safe forever.
Nothing that you could do would jeopardize that safety when you fully submit and surrender your life unto him. Your salvation is accomplished by everything that Christ has done. Your salvation is secured through Christ. And as a child of God, that gives you his Holy Spirit. Yes, that Spirit gives you a spiritual gift to be used for his glory and the strengthening of the church. But that Holy Spirit also serves as the guarantor of your salvation the guarantor of your inheritance to come. So you don't lose that. It's not removed from you in an act of disobedience. Your disobedience could damage your fellowship with your Heavenly Father, but it doesn't remove the relationship with the Father. So as God's children, it's our it's, it's our part to walk in faithful obedience to God, to seek to, to live a life accordance to the word and to the will of God. And when we mess up and we step out of line, then we confess that, we repent from that, and we strive to do better and move forward in life. Right? But if you're not a child of God, it means you simply haven't submitted and surrendered your life unto Christ as Savior of your life and Lord over all that you are and all that you do. So in this moment for today, my prayer for each and every one of us is that the Holy Spirit would make known to each and every one of us, including myself, certain decisions that need to be made in order to honor and to glorify Him. Some of us need to fully submit and surrender our whole lives and receive the salvation that He offers through His Son. Some of us have just been walking in rebellion and disobedience, and we need to confess that, repent from that, and start to walk a new life, a new relationship with God. Whatever that decision may be, I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, and the elders are available to talk with you and encourage you in any way that we can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of being able to gather together to worship you, through song, through giving, through, through listening to uh, the scriptures and through the power of the preaching of your word. So, Father, in this moment, I pray that your spirit guides us and directs us in, in certain decisions and commitments that we ought to be making and extending in our lives that help us to know what is the right thing that you ask from us in this very moment. May we not be discouraged or distracted by, by what's happening around us. May we not be worried about what other people might think or perceive. Should we actually walk down and, and kneel at the altar or go to an elder for a time of prayer? May we not worry about any of that. May we solely focus on being able to leave here in a proper relationship with you. Father, guide us encourage us, strengthen us, and be glorified by what you see in us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.